Have you ever experienced unexplainable pleasure at someone else's misfortune? If you have, then you, my friend, have experienced schadenfreude. Welcome to episode 114 of This Shit Works, a podcast dedicated to all things networking, relationship building, and business development. I'm your host, Julie Brown, and today we are discussing why we relish in the misfortune of others. Welcome to This Shit Works, your weekly no-nonsense guide to networking your way to more friends, more adventures, and way more success with your host, Julie Brown. Here we go. Schadenfreude is made up of two German words, schaden, which means harm or damage, and freude, which means joy. So finding joy in someone else's misfortune. The German word was first mentioned in English texts in 1852 and 1867, and then first used in English running text in 1895. Now, before 2000, barely any academic articles were published with the word Schadenfreude in the title. Now, a simple Google search of the word will result in hundreds from neuroscience to philosophy to management studies. Researchers have found that there are three driving forces behind Schrodinger. They are aggression, rivalry, and justice. Aggression-based Schadenfreude primarily involves group identity. The joy of observing the suffering of others comes from the observer's feeling that the other's failures represent an improvement or validation of their own group status in relation to external groups. This is essentially schadenfreude based on groups versus status. An easy example of this is team sports. Take, for example, a study in a laboratory in Wurzburg, Germany in 2015, 32 football fans, so this would be soccer for us Americans, agreed to have electromyography pads attached to their faces, which would measure their smiles and frowns while watching TV clips of successful and unsuccessful fall penalties by the German team and their arch rivals, the Dutch. The psychologists found that when the Dutch missed a goal, the German fans' smiles appeared more quickly and were broader than when the German team scored a goal themselves. So the smiles of Schordenfreude and joy are indistinguishable except in one crucial respect. We smile more with the failure of our enemies than at our own success. Rivalry-based schadenfreude is individualistic and related to interpersonal competition. It arises from a desire to stand out and outperform one's peers. This is schadenfreude based on another person's misfortune eliciting pleasure. Because the observer now feels better about their personal identity and self-worth instead of their group identity. So, according to life science, there is evidence that feelings of schadenfreude might start young, perhaps as early as two years of age. In one 2014 study, researchers set up experiments to elicit schadenfreude in 24-month-olds. In one condition, the scientists asked a mother to read a book to herself while her child and a preschool classmate played. After two minutes, the mom would accidentally spill water on the pages of her book. In the second condition test group, the mother would cuddle her child's friend on her lap as she read her book, 
making her own child jealous of the attention. Again, at the two-minute mark, the mother would spill water on the pages of the book. The researchers found that the jealous kids were more gleeful about the spilled water than the kids who hadn't been primed to experience that jealousy. Justice-based schadenfreude comes from seeing that behavior seen as immoral or bad is punished. It is the pleasure associated with seeing a bad person being harmed or receiving retribution. Schadenfreude is experienced here because it makes people feel that fairness has been restored for a previously unpunished wrong and is a type of moral emotion. According to Very Well Minds, and then President Trump announced his positive COVID-19 diagnosis in early October 2020, Merriam-Webster reported that schadenfreude, defined as enjoyment obtained from the trouble of others, was its top search, increasing by 30,500%. The president had concocted the very illness he had been publicly downplaying, a perfect example of a schadenfreude motivator. Cultural historian Tiffany Watt-Smith, in her book Schadenfreude, the Joy of Another's Misfortune says that schadenfreude happens for a reason. And when we are willing to look it in the eye, it is easier to ask what prompted it in the first place. Noticing our schadenfreude and understanding why it feels so deliciously satisfying can help us face up to the more excruciating feelings underneath. Common underlying emotions include envy, anger, inferiority, feelings related to self-worth. And when schadenfreude becomes our coping mechanism for these underlying feelings and emotions, that's when it can become bad. That's when it erodes our ability to empathize with others. According to Tiffany Watt-Smith, there are examples of schadenfreude in almost every corner of the world. The Japanese have a saying, the misfortune of others tastes like honey. The French speak of joie mali, a diabolical delight in other people's suffering. In Danish, it's schadenfreude. In Hebrew, Sminsha Laed. In Russian, I'm going to butcher this, Sloradstvovo. And I'm going to butcher this one even more. And for the Melanesians who live on the remote Nisan Atoll in Papua New Guinea, it's Ben Benem. Two millennia ago, the Romans spoke of Malevolentia. Earlier still, the Greeks described Epi Chari Kakai, literally Epi over Chari, rejoice Kakai, disgrace. To see others suffer does one good, wrote the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. He also said, this is a hard saying, but a mighty human, all too human principle. So while schadenfreude is a universal human emotion, it's definitely not the healthiest coping strategy available to us. Like anything else in life, indulge in schadenfreude with moderation. Okay, so do I have a cocktail for you? As you know, when the beaver cocktail to go with the theme of an episode, I always just Google the theme and then Google cocktail. So for today, I Googled Schadenfreude cocktail. And would you believe there was more than one to choose from? But I chose a slightly different pack. I chose this cocktail because of the story behind it. The cocktail of the week was called Cousin Scotty Fails His Shriving Test. Created by Brian Bartels as Shea Sardine, he says, I have a cousin named Scotty. He's two years older than me. I was in the same grade as Paul, his little brother. We were smart asses. Scotty was very excited the day he went to take his driver's test to achieve a legitimate Wisconsin driver's license. I'll never forget when he came back home. 
It was something I had come to understand as schadenfreude. Scotty came back and the first thing we saw was his keys flying across the kitchen and crashing into the wall. He stormed up the upstairs steps with his fist clenched and, and all Paul and I wanted to do was tease him for failing. This is what our families did best. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, it took Scotty three attempts to get his driver's license, my brother Tim too, and my niece too as well. So I guess it runs in the family. The recipe for Cousin Scotty Bills' driving test goes like this. Unfortunately, Brian Bartels doesn't give us exact measurements or measurements at all. But he says, here's what you're going to need. Johnny Drum Bourbon, Carpano Antica Vermouth, House Saki Agave Syrup and Angostura's Bitters, stirred in a mixing glass and strained over ice into an old-fashioned glass and garnished with a wide orange peel. All right, friends. <laughs> That's all for this week. If you like this episode, please go on over to iTunes and leave a review. Subscribe and share with your friends. Until next week. Cheers. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a tip. And remember, you can unapologetically be who you authentically are and still be wildly successful. That's a fact. See you next week on This Shit Works.